This is the Zen's podcast on science, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Zen Rang Yap, and my guest today is Michelangelo Valtancoli. He is an early stage VC investor at Stride.VC. He was previously the founder and podcast host of Almost Founders, where he provided high quality, straight to the point information on being a founder, raising, and building. He did an undergraduate in business at Cass Business School and was an avid actor in Italy, London, and in Michigan, where he did his year abroad. He's always very curious about everything and has a great presence where he goes. And I'm very happy he's here today. Welcome to the podcast, Michelangelo. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm super happy to be here. It's exciting. Yeah, yeah. How have you been since the last time I saw you in the summer? I'm good, man. So much has happened since. And uh, oh, by the way, I have to mention that your pronunciation is spot on. Uh, I never get that. And it's very, very notable of you. But I've been good in the past uh, six nine. I don't think it's six months since I've last seen you. It's like uh, September or August. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exciting times. I've done my first few months, uh, five or six months at Stride. So it's uh, it's been quite a roller coaster, (laughs) not going to lie. It's uh, an adventurous year, that's for sure. Hmm. Awesome, yeah. So uh, how's it been so far, being in early stage VC? What's it like? It's, uh, I'm not going to lie, it's amazing. I really, really like it. I think it's, um, it's... Often it's quite undervalued and underestimated as a as a starting your career in VC. And I've recently made a tweet about it in the sense that people kind of feel like if you start your career in VC, you're taking the shortcut. You're like you should found a company, work and build, and then jump in VC. On one side, I totally understand why people say it. It makes a lot of sense because for you to be able to properly assess startups, it makes sense that you want to actually understand how to build one. Yeah. It's reasonable. Uh, however, at the same time, I don't think it's a necessity. Uh, and this is something a lot of people don't agree with. Um, but I don't exactly know why they wouldn't agree with when we have hundreds of examples of extremely good investors that have provided great returns over multiple, multiple years. Um, over and over so it's not really and and they haven't had any uh, operational experience they come from investment banking uh, Mm. or other industries so uh, as much as you disagree with the notion that uh, you don't necessarily need to an operator to be a good investor uh, there are there are a lot of examples so um, yeah I I decided to go straight into VC and I've been loving it, honestly. I've been really, really enjoying it. <laughs> By the way, it wasn't really a decision. I kind of fell into it. Yeah. I was doing, uh, I was doing the podcast and I had a startup with, before, which is called Waves. Uh, yeah. That I was doing alongside almost well, almost founders and Waves were pretty much the same thing. And I'm, I'm sure we'll dive deep into it uh, later. But um, I was, I had on the podcast uh, Fred Destin, which is the founder oh, of, yeah. uh, which is the founder of Stride, the VC fund I work at, and. Uh, and that led me to then just click with the team and talk to everybody and then I did a case study and I just joined and I had no idea what I was getting myself into and now I realized that it was an amazing decision because VC gives you a broad the opportunity to maintain a broad perspective over multiple industries and multiple per, uh, opinions on how those industries will evolve over the years. Mm. And that's something you don't get in a lot of roles, to maintain that that opportunity to just take a step back and analyze from a macro perspective how stuff changes. Um, and as a founder, you don't get that benefit because you're focused on one thing for five to 10 years, if not more, yeah. and building obsessively. So um, I've, I've 
I think I found something in VC. It's very, very cool. I can't lie. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, as you said, the journey you took was uh, probably more unconventional than most people. Mm. But it's a new perspective, you know, like you probably see things in a different way to oh, yeah. other people because it's straight in. Yeah, yeah 100%. And, and I'm not going to lie, this, the learning curve was incredibly <laughs> steep. Like my radar for understanding good startups at the beginning was completely off. Like you can imagine we had meetings where which we had a list of like 30 startups and we sort of tried to identify the two or three that we would keep got them wrong the whole time well not wrong but got them off from my the rest of my team which is much mm -hmm. more experienced and much better um most of the time so um i've noticed that it the radar quickly however aligns because uh, you pick up information quite fairly quickly and understand exactly what signals to look at what signals not to look at but it's not a perfect science it's it's a more um it's much broader than is there is no right or wrong and i mean if one is a unicorn and you say no you were wrong possibly but it's uh it's not so black and white that's also something i've uh, i've i've learned over over the past few months it's uh it's much more about accumulating signals and understanding collectively um whether something makes sense and could work or not hmm. so um that's definitely something that i didn't expect uh to find and and it turned out to be true so before we dive into like the uh, frameworks and methodologies, I wanted to ask, yeah. uh, like how would how would you tell people what VC is for people who you, like, don't know about mm. it? Yeah. Um, how how would I say what VC? Yeah. is? Especially at your good, stage as well. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a good question. Um, so what VC is very simply, we take rich people money. <laughs> now we take money from different institutions and individuals, and we put them to work, and uh, we we essentially provide liquidity to startup founders that uh, need capital to accelerate their operations, to hire more talent, and just to run their things. So mm -hmm. um, to create disruptive companies, um, and. Uh, uh, however, there are multiple types of VCs with very, very different approaches. We uh, like to, uh, to, to consider ourselves as artisans. Uh, <laughs> and let me explain what it is. It's uh, essentially the idea that we like to work very closely with all the startups we invest in. Uh, so we will invest in 10 to 15 startups per year max. Um, depends on the year, obviously. but. 10 to 15 per year uh, with tickets of around 1 million um, but anything from 250k to 5 million so at the very early stages um, into any sector um, mm -hmm. so we're sector agnostic we don't really go deep into biotech and deep tech but that's yeah. uh, side the point and um, and yeah um, so it, pretty much we um, we see everything we uh, we see a good broad uh, of perspective and we try to come together to a decision of what makes sense to invest in and what doesn't and then we work very closely with the founders to support them as much as possible and this approach artisans is very different from others approaches for instance tiger global which is very well known for investing in a lot of companies and sort of indexing mm -hmm. markets um, so I really like our approach because it gets me, gives me a chance to be in the room with the founders, and that's what really interests me. It's not really the, <laughs> the, well, the yeah, exactly. It's the hands-on where you learn how to actually build a company <laughs> and you get to see it from up close. So um, it's it's really really interesting, and um, 
I, Fred and, and the rest of the team always says that being a VC is a sort of excuse to actually be in the rooms with the founders because at the end of the day where they are building companies and our monetization strategy is investing in them but uh, <laughs> that's, that's only the monetization aspect yeah so I guess that, um, that leads us into like what the methodologies and frameworks that early stage VCs have and uh, how has working in this area over your five and six months how has it changed the way you approach things uh, compared to how you previously had approached them as uh, being fresh out of university, yeah. having been a podcast of a host and a founder and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So before joining Stride, I was working on Waves, uh, which is a community management platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, essentially, w- what we were focusing on before joining Stride was just ruthlessly trying to build something that resonates with people Um, so a lot of testing and iterating and testing and iterating now I realized that obviously I I was doing it at uni and I really didn't have too much of a clue of what I was doing similar to now by the way but but even more so at the time and uh, we were just just trying to build something that people liked and uh, we were obsessively testing and iterating, testing and iterating, doing it wrong a bunch of times, sometimes doing it right and we would learn something and from there building something more. So it's a bit of a uh, lead, the lean startup methodology mm-hmm. that I was, we were just obsessed with and we really <laughs> liked and uh, now I've joined the VC fund, it's been six months, I've looked at different types of approaches and just an incredible, incredibly varied type of startups and uh, and so on. So I realized that there is uh, so much more, and how much, how much, how different the real world is from uh, the scrappy reality of a twenty years old, nineteen years old founder. Um, which doesn't mean that they're off track if they're following it. It just means that. Uh, as a VC, I got a chance. Like it's one of the signals you look at. It's one of the things among the many that you uh, take into account when making a decision and when trying to understand if something's gonna work or not. And as a founder, you're completely obsessed with just that little piece of work. So it comes yeah. back to the discussion I was having before. You don't get the benefit to step back as a founder. And uh, so the big change in in perspective over the world of startups is that. There is so much more than the little bubble that a founder finds himself has to force themselves to be into, um, because they need to absolutely nail that one thing that they uh, are focusing on. And I couldn't, I personally wasn't able certainly to keep a double perspective of being focused on the little things, but also aware of the big picture. I was struggling with that, and now I get a benefit to step back, and there is just so much more to it that uh, comes mm-hmm. into account. Where being obsessed with your product and obsessed with your customer is one of the many things that uh, that rule the world of startups. How, how do you, because um, when you meet founders, their enthusiasm and like obsession kind of um, is contagious, right? Oh, so much. So how, how do you distinguish that from whether it's actually a good product or whatever they're building? You know, like, well, how does that come into play? Cause yeah, yeah, uh, that's a that. Well, there are so many types of biases that come into the decision making <laughs> process. So yeah. much, I think, we're pretty much ruled entirely by all sorts of bias, which is not necessarily negative unless the bias misleads you, right? Um, so. I would say, yes, it does tend to, if you find a, a founder that is obsessed with their product and obsessed with what they're doing, and it's definitely contagious, but I don't think it's necessarily negative because a founder that contagious, like that 
just shares across his, their passion is a founder that has a shot at building something because he's going to work on it for the next you, you have more confidence that they're going to be obsessed with it for the following year so yes you are more biased but possibly it's it's positive because <laughs> yeah uh it's actually one of the most important things we look in founders is are they extremely excited by the mission of what they're going after because we like missionaries not mercenaries so people <laughs> that build something for the the for their own personal reason, their own experiences and background, something within themselves that clicks rather than, oh, nice, I see this market opportunity, there is a gap over here, let me just tackle it. And yeah. from a financial point of view, it might definitely make sense. Uh, it's just not the game we play. Yeah, so it's not just transactional. You gotta have like the human of course. like fire to it. You know? Of course. I mean, <laughs> of course. Uh, I, I'm not saying that there is no a transactional side mm. to it mm -hmm. because at the end of the game we're playing with money and, yeah. uh, and it's the game but I like the thing that we're trying as much as possible to think about the implications of whatever we do and uh, and trying to collectively just support humankind <laughs> and uh, human progression um, at least that's what I'm really hoping to do over here <laughs> so, that sounds amazing man. Like, it sounds amazing yeah. but is it actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so uh, I want to ask because I mean you interviewed Fred Destin uh, Destin right mm -hmm. before and now you work with him so well, what's it like to work with big names in VC and learn from them you know yeah it's uh, it's a good question and uh, it's um, to be completely honest it's amazing it's one incredible experience and um, I cannot un like I cannot start to explain how how much value is transmitted just by osmosis itself, just by sitting in the same room and overhearing conversations of all sorts. And it's something that I've, I notice the more I go on to. It's 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 not like one day you just sit in the room and you listen to something interesting and it and it resonates with you and and then you apply it the day after. It's something much more long term. You get a chance to your brain gets a chance to absorb how other people think how they operate how they what their frameworks are what their approach to life to anything is um, so I am I think it's one of the main reasons why uh, working at Strat is so beautiful it's because <laughs> of the people there um, I get the chance to observe we, we're just six in the investment team right um, and one of them is Fred Destin which was one of the early stage investors one of the first investors of Deliver Pillpack, Zoopla, and now Kazoo with Stride as well. Uh, so he's seen a, a few, a thing or two, and he was on the board of all of these. So it's uh, he's extremely experienced, and he knows how company operate and also how people operate. So it's very, very intriguing. And on the other side, we have Cleo Sham, the other partner, which was one of the early operator at Uber, uh, Uber China, and so she grew it up from zero to the thirty-five billion dollar merger with Didi. So she also has seen a, a thing or two about how to scale a company and how to hire, how, to, how people work and operate. So um, I'm just extremely grateful I get a chance to, to observe and capture the value. And one thing I will say, they really operate like superstars. I, I, oh. They are always on point. The, the way they reason is just on a... On a I've realized how much of an... A, experience really makes and uh and talent it's a uh, pretty mind-blowing hmm. have, have you talked to them about how they managed how they got there was it like through trial and error lots of 
lots of like um experiences different sort of failures uh, i haven't i haven't explicitly <laughs> talked to them about this it's a uh, well it's a uh, what do i do do i just show up to them and i'm like so how did you become fantastic <laughs> i i guess i guess they, they just build themselves throughout the years and their own personal experiences mm. um but no i haven't explicitly talked to them about it i i should though i should i will and, and report back yeah. well, what was what's the like greatest thing that you've learned from them so far um, the greatest thing that I've, that's a good question. I, uh, I would say the greatest thing in a way that Fred operates is his ability to align in uh, frequencies with the person he's talking to. So his ability to set himself in a, to a level where he's able to properly understand the other person straight away. So he has mm -hmm. this ability to click with anybody pretty much because he knows how to shift this level of energy in the like pretty much straight away so he gets yeah. people super easily and he shifts his energy level and he puts himself on a learning um, on a essentially in a, in a learning environment where there is a free exchange of ideas and that's just to see it in action it's incredible it's really really mind-blowing so I mean I'm, I'm talking like I'm a fan and I work with the guy but it's a uh, it's definitely notable and it's the biggest takeaway it's, um, from, from working yeah. with him. It's just hopefully, just admiring and hopefully learning his ability to yeah. do that. It's like getting on the same level and thinking things through with the other person, right? Yes, it, aligning the energies pretty yeah. much. Awesome. It, sounds, it sounds abstract, <laughs> but if you see it in action, it's very much real. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And um, I mean, speaking about like aligning, right? And um, so how, how do you separate like work slash VC life with like personal and friends life? Like, yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't really do that. I, I I'm uh, I don't know. I look. I've I've kind of found my people in startup folks in the mm. sense that I get a ch like all of you guys are extremely cool people. Uh, I like founders. I like student founders. I like people that are scrappy and trying to bring something meaningful to the world and just constantly working on something and building the true craftsmaker, the true, uh, the true artisans actually, uh, that are building and creating. So I don't want to separate my professional life from my, from my real life because I really like these kind of people that are constantly producing and working and, and creating meaningful things. So I don't want to and I don't. So my <laughs> life is completely immersed in VC startups and, uh, and friends all the time. They all are one thing and I don't know if it's healthy or not. <laughs> I'm not going to speak on that, but it's what I like and I think it's fair for everybody to be free to do whatever they want. So um, I, I think that's what, what, what I'm going to stick to. <laughs> Yeah, I find there's like some sort of special energy when you when you meet people who just can't help but work on like what they love, you know. Yeah. And when then that spills to everything else and that. Yeah, man. Um, all their their friends, their family. I mean, maybe they support them, right? And like, it's just great, honestly. Yeah. Oh no, it's uh it's amazing, and it's it's great that we we have these little communities popping off around mm. just startup and uh, that's how we met originally mm. right so yeah. we wouldn't be having you wouldn't be listening to this interview if it wasn't for just us uh, blurring the lines between friends and uh, friends and uh, work colleagues or just work related uh, acquaintances so yeah yeah and i'm, I'm obviously very glad <laughs> likewise <laughs> that man. we met through like just brunches and stuff likewise yeah so um, all right, let's have a spicy question. Uh, <laughs> so previously you talked a lot about entrepreneurship, right? 
and you touched on it a little bit just now as well but um to ask why did you get into early vc uh instead of going out and going straight into building yeah this is funny so <laughs> actually I'll, I'll i'll tell you an anecdote before we dive into mm-hmm. exactly the answer but i was at um i i snuck into a partners lunch so, uh, <laughs> like a partners event yeah. so essentially these this big series b series c fund um hosted a a reunion for partners of really high quality funds to to go to um and he's just the partners got an invite but <laughs> but we kind of have access to everybody else in our team uh email and so we saw giles and i giles is my colleague at stride giles and i saw the email and we kind of decided to go to this partners meeting <laughs> without really checking in too much with everybody else in the team so we showed up and we we're the only two <laughs> like super junior vcs and everybody else was a partner and we had these really intriguing conversations and all the partners there kept asking us, why are you in VC and why aren't you building something? And they were mad about it. So this is a topic that I feel extremely insecure about. No, I don't feel insecure about it, but it's definitely a common theme. Um, and um, my answer to that is that at the end of the day, they're very, very different. Mm. Um, as I was explaining on one, you need to be obsessed and work and be uh, like extremely fast and executioner and, and ruthless with distractions and everything else. On VC, you have, you have to be distracted. It's part of the job to let yourself and open yourself to the possibility that not everything needs to be executed straight away. Mm. Be bored sometimes, understand, like, yeah, it's much more about ideas and understanding the macro perspective, understanding the people. So it's much more of, um, they're very, very different realities. And so not necessarily, um, I don't think necessarily founders journey is for everybody. And I don't know if it is for me, I'm exploring. I'm, I'm, I still have a few more years, hopefully, uh, like to explore, but um, I'm not against it, uh, being a founder. Uh, but if I look at myself uh, a few months ago when I was deciding what to do with my life, um, I was, I really fell out of love with the product I was building yeah. because we reached a point where it was pretty, it was okay. We started making some money with the product. We were growing it. Um, we were making iterations, but I, I didn't feel a passion anymore towards mm. it. Um, so joining a VC fund for me in that moment, joining these incredible people was the logical step. Um, I'm sort of free flowing. I'm, I'm seeing how it works as I, as I, as I continue to live, but, um, I don't agree with this obsession to be a founder. I don't yeah. think everybody should be a founder. I think my skills actually, if I look at myself in the mirror and I try to be extremely honest, are probably not aligned with what it takes to be a world star founder. And I'm not saying that maybe one day I'll go back to be a founder. Mm-hmm. I definitely do have some aspects and traits of a, of a founder. And, uh, but I, I don't know if I have 360 degrees of what it takes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many types of founder as well, so I won't exclude it. But um, right now I just, I just really am grateful for the opportunity to take a step back and, and look from a macro perspective and you just don't get that when, uh, when founding something. So uh, yeah, the answer to your question is why didn't I be a, why wasn't I a founder? Because I can, because I get the benefit to choose and because I felt like doing something else. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that sums it up. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought it was amazing that when you, when you first told me uh, you're doing early stage like VC, I thought it was such, such a different thing to most people and it's like it's something it's something that 
um, most young people don't do because they like either haven't heard of it or they just don't know how to oh, break yeah. in. You know, no, no. Well, it's getting a bit more popular slowly. Like yeah. it's becoming a bit trendy, but hundred percent. Like I wasn't thinking that VC was a, a was a, an attainable job right. right after uni. Like it's not something you think about when you're 20 it's just so far of, a, of your perspective and there are people that do but definitely not in my perspective i fell into it i, I was telling you like we uh, just if it wasn't for that podcast where i clicked with fred mm-hmm. would have never happened so i really fell into it and i feel like if i took a, if i talk to my peers that are also junior vcs 95 percent of them also fell into it <laughs> um yeah. it's just quite random yeah yeah, I mean, I think it's great. It's also like, just a really cool adventure, you know. Oh, what do you think? Man, yeah, no, it's so cool. You get the benefit to talk to amazing people all the time that are mm-hmm. building incredible startups, and they're the real guys. Like they're the real people that we look up to, and uh, um, I'm uh, just extremely grateful that as a VC, I get the chance to not only talk to them, but ask them questions <laughs> do you get well i think that the only other job that makes you do that is being a podcaster or, <laughs> yeah. or a journalist yeah. uh and and both of us were, did the, the podcasting yeah. thing so yeah. i think at some point we either become a journalist or a vc it's up to you man <laughs> yeah yeah and uh i think that leads us into the next the next part like why did you start almost the almost founders podcast and uh yeah, I mean, I, I love it. I've been listening to it. Yeah, that, oh, thank you, thank you. Um, we created the podcast because of the, well, it was more of a of a natural, being naturally drawn to, to creating content. I've always loved content of all sorts. I come from an artistic family. Uh, I've done artistic stuff my whole life. Um, so my parents are musicians, classical mm. musicians. Awesome. Uh, yeah, which is which makes me ending up in VC even <laughs> weirder, um, and uh, and I've done well music as a kid, but then but then I my my way of uh, expressing myself artistically um, actually was uh, acting. So I've done acting my whole life, um, and. Um, and yeah, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure where I was going with all of this uh, background <laughs> stuff. But um, uh, yeah, w- where were they going with this? I completely <laughs> lost the train of thought. It was about why you started the podcast. Oh and yeah, you were talking right. about the creative right. part. The creative parts. Yeah, <laughs> creating content. Creating content. Um, yeah, creating. I, I've always been attracted to content by itself because I think the 21st century is so like. Is the first time in history we get to share this content broadly and globally and effectively. It's, uh, I don't know, I just have a really close attraction to creating all sorts of content. I've always wanted to do videos and, and audio stuff and music. Well, well I, I've never done music, but um, just, just the instruments that I've played and, and acting and so on. So um, when Kursh and I, Kursh was my co-founder at the time, and when Kurush and I sat down and we, we tried to understand what kind of product you wanted to build, we said, we don't know, we wanted to build something in the student entrepreneurship space mm-hmm. and we didn't know what. And we, and we sort of were, we don't know what to build. Why don't we start trying to understand what student founders want to hear about? And so we, 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 had that, we had that test that we set ourselves to build a product. We wanted to build something for student founders. We didn't know what. We decided, okay, how do we find out what student founders want to hear about? 
Yeah. And we arrived at the conclusion, well, why don't we produce content and then try to look at the number of listeners and click rates and, and the feedback for each topic that we talk about. And so we started having really hyper-targeted interviews with uh, high-profile uh, high guests on specific topics in entrepreneurship. And so we, what we were doing behind the scenes is try to study actually which topic resonated more with people, with student founders, our audience. So you look at the episode we have about traction and you look at the number of listeners, how much it was shared and so on. And then you look at the episode about any other topic and you sort of compare themselves. And then we, the plan was to create educational content about the, the things that people wanted to hear about. But now looking back, I kind of realized it wasn't an extremely effective scientific test because it's very, very hard to understand the data about an episode and the behavior behind each uh, episode data. And you yeah. may know it when you try to look at, you know, Spotify artists, yeah. those sort of numbers. It's very inaccurate and, and difficult to understand, especially when the numbers aren't like in the hundreds of thousands of downloads. So, um, so it wasn't an extremely successful experiment, but it was a pretty successful podcast in the sense <laughs> that I, it did, uh, we did get some good numbers uh, and I personally enjoyed doing it so much and uh, we got to meet extremely nice and talented people. We had Matt Clifford from yeah. Entrepreneur First. We had, uh, well, Lemonade founder Daniel Schreiber, well, Fred Destin, I got my job yeah. in podcasting. So what it was essentially an excuse to build something, uh, it became one of the central aspects of my life in 2020 and 2019. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this just sounds so great. The, 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 uh, the intro of Almost Founders, like... It always, it always sounds so epic. <laughs> we try to make, we try to make it epic and intriguing. It's funny, yeah. I, I, I think I, I really want to get back at it at some point. I'm not sure if it's gonna be almost founders or if it's gonna be something else. Uh, but I can't wait to start producing content again. I'm really, and I'm so glad you gave me the chance to waffle here on this podcast uh, because I love it. I love it, man. Yeah, the whole point is to, to share the work with people, you know, and uh, just, just to chat, just have long-form conversations, well, understand the person. Exactly. So. Thankfully, we have internet for that. Imagine people yeah. before internet didn't get a chance to listen to what other people speaking other languages on other sides of the planet were thinking. Like, we are so lucky we get to experience and be exposed to the minds of Lex Friedman, of all the guests that Lex Friedman interviews, all the guests <clears throat> that, all sorts of content on, on YouTube, Twitter, everywhere. Twitter is so valuable as well, yeah. man. I don't know about you, but I'm obsessed. And uh, I'm extremely, I don't know, I'm extremely grateful for internet uh, when it comes to sharing of knowledge. I think it's a, it's a game changer. I don't think anybody can say anything different when it comes to that. How, how do you use Twitter? How do I use Twitter? Bad, badly. <laughs> That's the. Uh, I I wish I posted more content, but it's um. Well, I I started following a um, bunch of people. That's how I started. A bunch of people, quite randomly, those that were tweeting good stuff, um, and then I started organizing it a bit more over like over time. So unfollowing and sort of skewing and understanding, yeah. and 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 when you are into it a little bit, you understand that there is a few different ecosystem and bubble <laughs> bubbly ecosystem that arise, and you get a sense internal mapping of what different people talk about and. Um, and yeah, I created this list for myself of like student founders or um, or, or VCs in early stage VCs in Europe or 
uh, global uh, junior VCs. And so I have these lists internally that I can sort of rely upon to get ex like quite targeted mm -hmm. content um, depending on what I'm seeking. And so I think Twitter is a powerful Twitter is a powerful tool. I don't use it extremely well just because I, it's like the the 250 words are quite 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 tricky. Yeah, yeah. it uh, it forces you to put something a thought out there that is not fully elaborated. It's not like a podcast where you get a chance to explain yourself. It's literally some uh, five words on a spreadsheet, mm -hmm. and you try to be as controversial and weird as possible so that you draw people's attention. <laughs> So it's quite a risky tool, but it's also very, very intriguing because the human, it's human mind at work and, and freer than other social media because you can just, you just write, right? Um, and um, very powerful. I recommend anybody who's listening to this to go on Twitter and make yourself an account <laughs> and start using it. Um, you can follow me, Michelangelo yeah, under, yeah, yeah. underscore uh, MV. Uh, I gotta change that username though, but. Yeah, when, um, when I use Twitter, it's usually after looking at a blog post about um, like entrepreneurship or some sort of tech thing, people usually link link it to like a Twitter thread, like you know one of it, one of ten, two mm. of ten, three of ten. So the first one's usually to capture the attention and then to elaborate. It, it goes on. Yeah, exactly. I I will. I, one thing I do is bookmark pretty much everything <laughs> I find interesting. So I have a backlog of a thousand bookmarks uh, of different threads that I really need to go through. Uh, but luckily I have also an amazing team that shares the Twitter threads they find most interesting. Yeah. So uh, I get I get also a super high quality feed from Fred Destin and Cleo and the rest yeah. of my team of really good tweets that you gotta read. So <laughs> uh, yeah, um, it, it's a powerful tool, but also noisy. It, tends, it, it can be mm -hmm. toxic and noisy. So, yeah, 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 that's like, a that's one of the things that uh, my friend Jack, Jack Chong, talks about, right? Signal to noise ratio. Oh yeah, he's, a, he's one hell of a guy when it comes to all of these uh, really interesting thoughts and signal to noise ratio. Yeah, it's luckily we've got algorithms that are starting to work, <laughs> uh, except for the fact that Twitter is so, so much promotions, man. I don't know about you, but they're pretty much everywhere nowadays. Every other post is a promotion. And then they take off the platform, they de-platform people. So it's a it's a risky business over there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I find it's best when I, um, like, I find one thing and then I just go deep into it, you know, like on YouTube and then the, find one thing, you learn everything, see what's on it, what people think. Yeah, yeah. Um, the very famous rabbit hole of, uh, of Twitter. Yeah, it's uh, interesting dynamics. So I want to ask you, uh, how does your experience with the podcast and EF come together for your work now as a VC? EF as an entrepreneur first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, as entrepreneur first, I was, I was a student partner. So what a student partner does, uh, for those of you that don't know entrepreneur first, entrepreneur first is a an accelerator uh, slash incubator for talents. Um, mm -hmm. So they invest in people, not companies. They go out there and they seek these super, super talented tech folks um, with technical knowledge that are expert in a field or really good operators or every everybody, every one of them has single personal skills that are very notable and, and outstanding and they seek them out they get them into this program they pay them to be in the program and they give them a chance to find a co-founder and to build something um, so I was super attracted from this because of 
Well, first of all, I, the founders are incredible. Matt Clifford and Alice uh, do an incredible job at explaining why Entrepreneur First Matter and why it's relevant. I highly recommend you to listen Thoughts in Between by Matt Clifford um, and also my episode with Matt Clifford on my podcast, Almost Founders. Uh, but both of those are, it's like both founders, Matt, both Matt and Alice are really, really good when it comes to understanding and engineering startup building. That's something I've taken away from my experience is that what they've essentially created a business of engineering companies. They have had to crack the code of how to create successful businesses and what it takes in a founder, what it takes at the early stages, how do you create a replicable a, repli a replicable process that you can do over and over again to create successful startups. And it's interesting because you you start digging deep and you you start learning about all the experiments that they've done and all the different types of approaches that they've had mm. over the years and they've come to a level of understanding and success that is notable so it taught me to appreciate the learnings that they've found for instance the different type of edges that they that different founders have that's a topic that they talk about a lot so okay. um, every founder has a personal edge what's your unfair advantage and they define three types of edges so expertise and so you have worked in an industry for 10 years and you have an understanding of it much better than all other teams out there um, and you understand that there is a gap somewhere that there is something that is not working well and you, because you understand the industry is in and out or tech advantage, so you're an extremely good coder or an extremely good builder in a specific area, mm. or you're just a talent catalyzer. You are a person, this is probably something I align most with because I have no expertise in any sector and I'm <laughs> no technical guy. So um, how do you catalyze talent to create incredible stuff? How do you use people? How do you mm -hmm. incentivize people? Um, so they have identified these three edges and uh, they've found a way to enable effective team matching. So what they do instead of telling people you would work well with this person because that's what they were doing at the beginning. At the beginning they had a whiteboard and they were trying to match people up yeah. and they quickly realized that was not working <laughs> at all. Um, so they have actually found the opposite mattered. What they're doing right now is they leave everybody build the team alone by themselves, however they prefer. They give activities to build the teams and blah, blah, blah. And then, instead of building them, they break them apart. They break the teams apart that don't work. Wow. So, and that is the most effective way that they can run this thing. So what they do is they, they let the teams build and then they break them apart <laughs> the ones that don't work based on productivity. So productivity is the number one signal and what they do is break them apart and this leads to a much higher percentage of successful businesses built over time. Um, so all of these learnings of how to engineer successful startups is what I take right now in my job as a VC. Uh, and it, uh, it's extremely valuable, I would say. It was very, very. I was very, very lucky to fall into entrepreneur first as well. So, um, with the breaking apart, that I'm, I suppose that comes with a little bit of conflict, right? Um, do, you, do, you, do you see that at, at work as well? And uh, how would you deal with that? Uh, a little bit of conflict into breaking teams apart. Mm. Uh, well, or like co-founders like falling apart. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, the, <clears throat> what they do, they're very wise about this in the mm. sense that they realize that. The only way for them to be able to act freely and to break things apart when they don't work 
is only if they create an environment where everybody feels free to jump off board as quickly as possible. So that's the first initial principle that they have. It's like, we are here to build incredible stuff. There are no stigmas. If you feel like something is going wrong, drop it quickly. One day, yeah. two days, break them apart as soon as possible. Fire fast, hire slow. Like that's the that's the um, that's the philosophy. Even though hire slow here doesn't really apply because it's like actually hire fast and break yeah. apart fast and um, and sort of hopefully something comes out uh, in in uh, in a positive uh, with a positive impact. So now at work, it's quite interesting. Te- teams falling apart. No, I would say that's one of the things we try to look for um, in initial meetings. We try to understand team dynamics as well, actually. So we try to understand how do these two people work together? How do these two, three people work together? What are the dynamics between each other when they talk about their product? And sometimes you get very interesting learnings. For instance, you see one is more dominating in the discussion and the other one is a bit more respectful of uh, speaking their mind. And so, um, these very interesting teams dynamics are then relevant because when things start to go wrong or very well, then they arise in different aspects. So it's one of the signals we utilize to understand uh, is this team going to build a successful product or are they going to fall apart? I mean, we don't try to predict if a team is going to fall apart unless it's super obvious, but it's definitely a signal to understand how will they operate and, and depending on the type of business that they have, it may or may not be suitable. Um, so it's one of the things we really try to look at teams interactions it's crucial oh I see so everything is like set up from the beginning right when you sit with the environment like the expectations are clear that um, you, you can drop out you can come in you can join different teams in EF 100% and right now as a VC we definitely try to understand as much as possible teams yeah. interactions as we can so yeah uh, overall EF has created a great great reality and uh, we as VCs we always uh, wait for the new cohorts of entrepreneur first <laughs> trying to understand what's coming out uh, not everything is successful a lot of things yeah. don't work out uh, and there are a lot of critiques also of the systems that are quite like on some things they may be right in the sense that some people say for instance that um, that the the startups that come out of EF are not mm, all of them moonshots because you have to engineer them in six months like in three mm-hmm. months and six months you go to uh, demo day so you have a very yeah. short amount of time to create a, an effective product so a lot of them are a bit um, there is a critique that tells them well they're a bit fake it until you make it you don't really have a product when you go to demo day and it's not always true but sometimes it's definitely an aspect and mm-hmm. it's a uh, the the what I want you to take away from this is venture capital is, is changing and all types of engineering of startups is changing the game and uh, there is still a long way to go but I feel like there are a few players that are starting to get it right and Entrepreneur mm-hmm. First is definitely one of them with a few standout companies that are making an example of of how it should be done. So how do you keep a, how do you keep ahead then like with everything that's changing? Ah, that's a good <laughs> question as well. Um, well, once again, noise to signal ratio it's an important one. Uh, so I try to be quite ruthless on where not to look. Uh, um, yeah. So it doesn't make sense to try to keep ahead on everything um, mm. because we're a generalist fund. Often people ask me, so what's your thought on on the future of supply chain logistics integrated with blockchain? And I'm like, 
Yeah, dude, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, the, the truth is, I don't know because I haven't done my homework on literally everything because it's impossible. We're a generalist yeah. fund. We need to assess all types of businesses and we're a team of six. Mm -hmm. How do you expect us to have... Uh, how do you expect us to have a perspective on all sorts of aspects of all industries? We don't. So most of the times we enter calls and we have no clue what the other person is talking. Well, we have a clue what they're talking yeah. about, but we have no perspective of what the in how the industry is moving and we have to learn very quickly. Uh, possibly we have a clue from their pitch deck, obviously, which yeah. we read beforehand, but uh, we have very limited views a lot of time. and. What we do internally is we try to come with, we, we have a, a tool that we use is called Rome. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we have a shared, shared Rome and everybody adds um, their learnings and we all try to collectively create an intelligence system mm -hmm. uh, within Stride where we're able to assess uh, multiple macro industries at any point in time because someone has already done a study on it, but it's constantly updating and trying to get to a specific level. But a lot of times is just outside of our scope, outside mm -hmm. of what we have known. And we, we luckily, we rely more on frameworks rather than knowledge in the sense, um, sure, if we know an industry very well, we will use our learnings and try to understand and, and decide on it. But mm. um, we also have internal ways of assessing and, and signals that we pick up upon uh, that are much more important than anything else. That's the only way we survive in a, being a generalist fund with such yeah. a broad scope. I think, um, so two things, Rome, the logo is a brain, right? Yeah, uh, well, it's, uh, is it a brain? It's, it's like the black, I, no, it's, um, it's not the brain, it's the, it's the, um, uh, the ship wheel, no? Like the, oh, the black ship God. wheel, I think. Let's see. Let's see. Rome Research. Yeah, that's it. Oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, so it's like the wheels are turning. You know? Yeah, the, the turning wheels, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it takes six people to turn the wheel really quickly. <laughs> because I was thinking That's like... Okay. What do you mean? I don't know. Oh. I, I, was, I was thinking because um, it's like Rome is like building a second brain, right? Oh, yeah. Where you, you have all the information there. Oh, yeah. And the power of six brains together oh, in the yeah. team. They that was super brain. Oh, right? yeah. The, well, yeah. That, but that's a beautiful comparison because what I've realized being in a VC is that VCs act independently. I'm my own VC and my team is their own VCs. Um, so I source my own stuff. I try to come up with my own reasonings and my own, my own strategies to understand a startup, my own research. And then we collectively come together to come to um, just collectively try to reach the best decision possible. So we operate as a team, but very much we keep our individuality in a lot yeah. of aspects. So what Rome does, it allows us to effectively contribute to each other's processes in a way that no other tool I've found does. So working on Notion as a VC, yeah. I could never see that. Now that we've switched to Rome, I get the chance to enter the thoughts of Fred, the thoughts of Cleo <laughs> and, and the rest of yeah. my team. And it's so invaluable. It's amazing. The collect collective shared IQ that we, we reached <laughs> Impressive. <laughs> no, we've got a long way to go, but it's uh, sounds like I, an ad for Rome right now. Oh man, I, I think it's a it's definitely a competitive advantage of other VCs. Mm. Just the mere fact that we use Rome. Yeah. So with a generalist fund, because you've seen so many things across many industries, um, it gives you the advantage of being able to like see patterns, right? That maybe some of the others haven't seen, like the more specialist ones. So, mm. what are your thoughts on that? 
I agree. Um, I yes, definitely. I think I think the specialist one can also see patterns, but they mm. see it vertically. So they see yeah. patterns in their own industry of what works and what doesn't. And actually, I have an incredible amount of respect for specialist fund mm. because they have to really acquire a lot of knowledge vertically and go deep into a specific topics and. It's notable the level of understanding they reach of specific topics. It's not my game. It's not what we play. Um, so when it comes to patterns across teams, well, it, it's yes, it's a good comment um, in the sense that we do notice a bit of patterns into what to look for in teams and what to look for in uh, in sort of the pitch deck and the different plans that the, mm. that the startups have for their journeys. Um, I mean, like patterns and like trends in different industries as well like integration of different like technologies yes uh, yeah, a little bit a little bit but it's also art because it's um it's very very broad it's um so it's a lot of noise that's what <laughs> i meant that's what i mean i think actually i would argue that the specialist funds are the ones that are able to give you more patterns and we 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 do have a few here and there um such as you know just very very macro trend towards all sorts of integrations yeah. and just open source and sort of creating a open environments of uh, or or communities for instance right now there's a huge trend towards community generated businesses and all sorts of decentralized mm -hmm. uh, decentralized trends and so on so yeah we do we do see a bunch of different patterns it's hard to make sense of them yeah uh, a bunch of them are distractions a bunch of them are just market driven and then they die off as soon as there is a nice age uh, <laughs> that we're entering right that we might be maybe entering right now so um yes definitely some patterns but it's hard to make sense of them so <laughs> you kind of and i think most of them right now for me are also quite hidden in my own brain. I kind of think I do recognize some things and when I when I think when I look at something I kind of some wheels in my head move and I'm like, I've seen that so I think that like yeah. but you don't fully I don't I don't fully understand them mm -hmm. completely. So I would I would struggle to word them out yeah. completely if it makes yeah. sense. It's quite complex but over time you probably build like an intuition or instinct, right? Definitely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is why I personally kind of trust my instinct more than my logic <laughs> on a lot of stuff. In the sense when I work together with my team to reach a decision I have to explain my thoughts, I have to word out everything. But a lot of the things is actually also innate. It's something yeah. we feel, which is why at Stride we have a policy that if a partner wants to push a deal, they can. They can push the thing even though they have no consensus. And it's oh, and I don't have that, that benefit, yeah. obviously, but I do have the benefit of saying, look, this is something that is coming from my gut instincts and they will take that. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean that the deal will go through by any means, but it's definitely something that they will accept and, and regard yeah. and try to understand collectively why is that, like, let's word it out, let's try to understand why you're feeling this, but yeah. it's, uh, it's not something that is disregarded, yeah. blackly, and I'm so grateful for that, I think it's beautiful. Hmm. It seems like the partners all have quite a lot of are quite curious by nature as well, I want oh, yeah. to understand things. Of right? course, of course, I think curiosity is... Um, one of those patterns you were talking about of uh, yeah. it's a common denominator in the VC industry mm. uh, luckily luckily but it's yes definitely yeah. curious yeah <laughs> well, what, what are the uh, benefits of, uh, of a generalist fund do you think there are the benefits of being generalist okay yeah. um, well that you get the chance to there is more stuff 
so if you're a vertical super imagine you're a fund that is focusing on one specific niche you gotta wait until there is something super high quality we there is constantly so much happening of all sorts of all sorts so if we if we manage to see the highest quality deals we get a chance to get the best of all verticals not just sit there and wait for one good startups to come out of something Mm -hmm. um so essentially we get to see much more stuff and much more high quality stuff because we're not bound to one specific vertical and um and it seems to be working for us because we've noticed like our returns are great so far uh we're quite young as a fund we're only three years old so we Mm -hmm. surely have a long way to go but um the benefits of being a generalist fund, uh, yeah, pretty much that. You, you get the chance to see many more deals, you get the chance to apply the learnings from one industry to another industry, mm-hmm. uh, as you were saying before, and uh, you don't have to essentially go deep into one specific vertical, which is quite risky also, quite frankly, because any industry is always at stake because another industry can take over. Like, look, I, I don't want to say that the whole of I don't know, B2B SaaS is gonna die because I can't say that. Yeah. And, and most generalist, most vertical focus funds aren't like super, super targeted. Um, but maintaining a broad perspective allows you to, whenever something big happens in the world, to maintain, to have the ability to jump from one thing to another and not be super market dependent. Like, you know, we had a bunch of years of hype of crypto stuff. Uh, <laughs> lots of funders have started of being vertically focused on NFTs or crypto and blah 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 and now if we go if we enter an ice age of in the next three years those funds will possibly be in a bit of struggle for the next few years with uh, with capital and so on because they're dependent on how that specific industry goes we get a chance to fly off and sort of decide to focus on whatever we want to so we're a bit more we're a bit more crash proof <laughs> we're a bit more crash proof and market dynamic proof and we're able to jump uh, wherever we want, more flexible and honestly just much nicer for me. Uh, much, much yeah. bigger of a learning curve, yeah. much more interesting as well. Mm. And possibly that results in better returns, but mm. um, nothing to take away from vertical focus fund. There is yeah. so many advantages on, on being vertically focused. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're just different games. I see, yeah. So um, so it's some, it could be about risk, could be about variety as well. The types of people running the fund, right? So. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say one is better than the other. Mm, They're yeah. just different games. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm obviously, I, I don't think I'm necessarily the best person to talk about this because I, my understanding of, I, I'm just six months deep into the mm. game, right? Um, but I'm. I also think that because I'm six months deep into the game, I get to. I still am a bit. F- uh, unfil like I still maintain a bit of unfiltered views. I'm not yeah. too deep into the game, so I. I get a chance to think still as a student or, you know, I'm still, I'm 22, I just joined. So, you know, I'm looking at it from fresh eyes. And uh, uh, so what I notice is just literally take a white sheet of paper and draw some lines and that's what you get right now. So very, very unfiltered views, essentially. I'm just telling you the things that I see. They may be wrong or or right, that's up to you to decide, but... I'm just so walking out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm iterating. Actually, of course, iterating <laughs> yeah. as we go, man. Yeah. That's the that's the rule of life. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, just want to bring it back to the podcast. Um, how would you have done the podcast differently if you were to do it again? Ah, that's good. I I really want to start a podcast again at some point. And this this interview is definitely making me want to do that. <laughs> um, woof. If okay, if I was to start a podcast right now, I would ask myself. 
um, what is out there. I would do much more research on what kind of content is out there and why are they producing that content and what is working and what isn't because I kind of feel like there is a big saturation in the podcast uh, of podcast content in specific industries um, and a bunch of really similar stuff uh, for instance a bunch of interviews with high-profile guests on uh, on different types of topics with not too much sense like some of them are great and go and have their own angle and personality driven as well but a lot of them are just very very similar and they don't get they don't build enough audience and if I wanted to do a podcast right now I definitely would do it also in mind of just reaching their, an audience thinking how can I build something that not only is interesting for me, but interesting for someone else, right? Uh, that's yeah. always the goal. So I would be a bit more ruthless on the type of content that I push out. So I would understand the market, understand what's out there and understand why is my extremely unique. Hmm. Um, and it's something that I don't think I did so much at the time. It was much more relaxed. Uh, right now I would, I would try to be a bit more ruthless in that regard. Um, so how can I be unique? Uh, and uh, align incentives and also um, I'm if there is one thing about podcasts is that the search and is Spotify is a horrible search engine you don't get new listeners out of like there is no algorithm in, oh, I don't know what kind of algorithms they have but it's not like TikTok. there is no yeah. discovery aspect so people don't discover you randomly from a podcast so you either have guests or other distribution strategies so I would definitely prioritize distribution strategies yeah. straight away because distribution is fundamental for podcasts and if you don't have that in mind from the beginning then you just get deep into building making podcasts and podcasts and podcasts and you forget how to distribute them and at the beginning actually it's quite important because I think you can get featured now from like Apple or Spotify if you launch a new podcast in like the new releases and so on so I would think through my distribution strategy twice before launching it because of the shitty discoverability <laughs> of podcasts over <clears throat> How, how did you do the marketing part and advertising for all well those? exactly I was relying a lot on the guests so when we had Lemonade founder Daniel Schreiber we would uh, first of all ask him his team and everybody else to share at the same time uh, we shared all of our content on social media but we were relying on other guests to uh, essentially promote it mm. and uh, and us to acquire and retain the listeners so when they come to our podcast to listen to Daniel Schreiber we try to convey what we do and why you should stay for the next episode um, so very important essentially the content what do you say to maintain the people to stay on your podcast for the following episodes and i remember we had a few sentences in there that were trying to get people like you know make sure to follow the podcast for more or explain the specific target audience instead of hoping that they, it resonates and they discover so saying uh, this podcast is specifically for student founders looking to found a startup uh, and and looking to learn more about the basics of entrepreneurship like very very niche and targeted and saying that upfront sort of makes people that are in that category click with notice so that increased retention rates and it worked very well associated with discoverability from the guests but right now what I would do uh, I don't know but I would definitely work more with other distribution strategies like like existing newsletter mm -hmm. existing like I would just ruthlessly utilize my my connections and network to get the podcast out there as much See. as possible and possibly other formats I would definitely do short content and short snippets to push yeah. on 
Uh, Instagram is not so great for discoverability either, but definitely would do TikTok or YouTube Shorts, which yeah. YouTube Shorts definitely underserved content. Anyways, we're getting deep into the how to crack <coughs> the podcast thing, but um, yeah. it's it's an interesting game, and uh, I'll definitely want to give it another go at some point. But I'm glad you're going deep because the whole point of it is to uh, understand the person, hear the thoughts, yeah, understand the the processes, right? <laughs> And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just I've just enjoyed doing the podcast a lot recently. So. How do you distribute it? You don't uh, do too much for it. Like you're kind of focusing a lot on the content, right? Yeah. On the actual interviews. How do you distribute it? At the moment, I'm uh, working on understanding how I do the podcast and uh, improving that first. Recently, okay, I've so been doing get, more distribution. You yeah. get the shitty guests first, then, <laughs> where you can. Th- no, I'm joking. The other guests I actually saw were amazing. Uh, so I'm. Uh, that's that's good. Okay, but um, yeah, definitely important to think how yeah. how to distribute. Hey, that's for sure. I've been doing more distribution recently because I realized that um, the guests are the like they deserve to be heard. You know, they do, and they take time out of their day, and they're good. <laughs> yeah, like the other episodes you've done were super good. So definitely think it's worth to yeah. double think how how to distribute it properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I wanna ask like. Since you've interviewed many different people, um, what is the difference between Gen Z founders and like previous generations? I thought you had an Oof. interesting take on that. Oof. Gen Z founders and previous generation. Gen Zs don't give a shit. Uh, <laughs> and excuse the French, Gen Zs have an extremely different psychology from everybody else. They are extremely atypical humans in the sense that they will not look in the face of anybody. They don't care what you, who you are, your brand. They're pretty, pretty unbothered. It's in the sense, the, the Gen Zs we talk to are usually the outstanding kids that are extremely talented and in some way or form are building at a super young age, something incredible. So when they arrive, just because they're just extremely unique and they don't care your stride oh well thank you i don't know who you are or what you do you need to impress me as a person uh i need to find like they need other reasons beyond brand beyond what you've done in the past to work with you they want to know what you can contribute your work they're just much cooler they cut through the noise more much better um and look, I love all sorts of founders, and uh, I think every every founder can do something extremely cool for different motives and missions. Gen Z founders are just extremely, extremely well aligned with all sorts of Web three dynamics that are arising and decentralized companies, and uh, just they're just they just don't give a shit about your who you are. They give a shit about what's behind the face. Uh, so. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy it a lot because uh, it humbles you pretty much every time yeah. you talk to a Gen Z founder where you thought where, where you think, oh yeah, we have we were gonna win this deal, and then they very much prefer to go with another fund uh, just because they click better with the people there that are more scrappy maybe or something else. So it's um, the Gen Z founders are sort of rewriting the rules of of what do you do to convince founders to work with you? Uh, mm. They think differently, they're wired differently because they're digital first and that's how they grew up and they're just more, much more native. They, they think differently. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very perceptive actually. How, did you realize this recently or it's been whilst you were interviewing them? Yeah, I, well, yeah, no, I, I don't know when I realized that, it, I mean, Definitely, with time, as 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 we struggled, like I couldn't, I can't say we struggled necessarily. We were quite lucky that we 
um, is one of our night like the partners are very very cool and they and they yeah. usually usually stand out as great like during calls we we win a lot of deals just because we were able to click well with the founders so but um, definitely stands across when you hop on a call with a Gen Z founder and it's like cool who are you tell me like okay cool and and they maybe don't like they don't care about the noise yeah I've realized by talking to them it's just something that stands out um, and I understand I, I appreciate that it's quite a broad thought but it's uh, I'm sure you, you you know what I mean when you think about Gen Z founders just being yeah I don't give a shit <laughs> just okay what do we do here well let's work let's build something yeah yeah, it's very mission focused, right? Very much. So, um, you did uh, a venture emerge, and uh, you were a judge for an intercollegiate pitch event. So you work quite a lot with students, right? So, mm. what motivates you to do that, and uh, what is your message? This I think it ties very well with the Gen Z stuff. Um. Well, yeah. I. I. Well, I love. I really like young founders um, because they usually, as I was saying, are. And they have unfiltered views, big ambitions. Sometimes they may be a bit naive, but that that helps as well. Um, they're just so much more energetic. <laughs> I prefer them so much. And it does like sometimes you get great founders from other generations and so on. But there is a pattern among young founders that they're just unfiltered. They have these amazing views of to, to build something incredible and they don't care if they don't have the credentials because they can build they can write code from the small room and never before in history you get to arrive to such big big lengths without like today we have killed like if you're an ambition person in the 21st century you have a great opportunity to make change from your room just by learning how to code and just by by doing you uh, so never before in history you were i mean there are there were other ways where ambitious people could could use the smallest amount of leverage to to get the greatest results um we're lucky we live in an age where everybody can express themselves in, in their own ways and contribute in their own ways so i love young founders because they they think big they are unfiltered they're unbothered they they want to do great stuff and uh and a lot of time uh, yeah, actually, I very much prefer a young founder that naively comes to me and tells me, I want to build the next SpaceX or whatever. Now, we don't do anything close to a hardware stuff or, 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 or uh, SpaceX things, but um, it's, uh, it's still much more notable than a young founder that comes to me with an idea to create a sort of panini brand or something because even though the panini one may be much more feasible it's it's the it's when they come to you with with these incredible incredible opinions and very very much controversial and just the co contrary contrary perspectives when they tell you yeah everybody's looking at this i'm gonna do that and it's huge and yeah. it's something incredible that's when my lights uh, my eyes light up and uh, when it gets interesting so um, we we actually invested in one company which is called Unai, and uh, it's from these very young kids that are trying to well, you're very young guys that are trying to build VR headsets, um, and and both the software and the hardware. Man, you're going up against Meta and, and all mm -hmm. sorts of players, like, and it's definitely getting saturated super quickly. It's super hard, 
and they are 20. Like, I don't know how old they are, but they're like, the guy built his first uh, VR headset when he was 15, and now he's wow. like 21 or 22, and he's doing that in an incredibly scrappy way, and that's what we like about it. We wouldn't back him if he was doing something much, much smaller and much less ambition. The beauty of it is that he's building something so incredible and so out of reach, and that's where the real nice stories get written, yeah. and that's what that's what life is about, man, and that's why we, <laughs> I love it so much. I like young founders, which is why I'm putting myself out in these events which is adventure emerge or or the judging competitions is because I truly believe that that young founders uh, are underlooked and underestimated because they come across as naive they come across as yeah you're never gonna make it and it's too big but then one of them makes it and everybody needs <laughs> their hand um, so I'm the biggest fan of young yeah. founders you should that's the takeaway <laughs> there's something special about like feeling like you're being part of building the future, yeah. you know, which is what these young founders with all their optimism and dreams. Oh yeah, yeah, man. And you know when you speak to one of them that you look at them in the eye and you feel there's something magical about <laughs> how they talk and how they think, how they reason, how they process information. So these, um, yeah, it's uh, wh when I see the spark and the magic, I can't avoid but staying close to that person and supporting them and back them however I can. It doesn't necessarily need to be monetarily. I think there are many ways we can support each other. Because at the end of the game, I don't think, I think these founders usually don't really do it for the money. I think mm -hmm. we're all in here just trying to have fun, be curious, trying to explore and build mm -hmm. something useful and cool and just exciting because yeah. that gives us leverage to do even more exciting <laughs> stuff and even more cooler shit. So. Um, yeah, I'm definitely out there trying to support as much as possible these young, naive, uh, naive, uh, ambitious kids. I think it's so great, and we need more people like you, you know, doing these things and believing in the next generation. Yeah, and like you, man, <laughs> the actual doers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to ask, since um, I mean, you've been in London, um, doing VC, and mm -hmm. yeah, you're actually from Italy, right? Uh, I'd like to know how is London doing in the whole VC space compared to any European countries in the US I thought you'd maybe have some ideas on where to point people towards and just some thoughts as well yeah um, where do I point people towards well I point them towards London you should come here <laughs> <laughs> this is the fastest way in Europe to get to a interesting ecosystem no I think there are many realities that are interesting in Europe and there are different sort of hubs that are arising all over all over Europe um, unfortunately in Italy it's a bit slow right now it's uh, it's very hard to do anything super meaningful uh, in, uh, in in Italy yeah. because there is not so much um, I don't know it's a bit of a cultural aspect and uh, not so much capital that is being deployed sm smartly and founders prefer to just start their companies elsewhere and I, I'm not sure I would hold them accountable for that and so um, yeah, there are a few bubbles, a few ecosystems. Uh, one of it, uh, London. Another one is Paris, which mm. is definitely interesting. We have all the Dach region, and uh, um, so uh, you know, and also the Nordics are very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, and I feel like there are a few players in each in each of these sectors that are quite interesting. I want to say that the French ecosystem has been popping off recently. Definitely notable and worth of mention. Um, we at Stride kind of look at mainly UK, but we also do everything else in Europe. And the French ecosystem is something we're very close to because of Fred Destin's background as well. Yeah. Um, but how the French ecosystem operates is actually quite interesting, and I want to mention it. They are pretty standalone. They just separate, and uh, the fundraising in France is 
you speak French, you speak to VCs which are French, the founders are French, they speak French, everybody reasons in a very separate way of thought and it's not super international but it works, it got strong results and now we're seeing some amazing companies coming out of the French ecosystem and greatly outperforming Italian ecosystem or other ecosystems. So um, yeah, it's just, I think it's just a very interesting aspect that I, um, I'm quite surprised of, the fact that France just doesn't operate like other nations and yeah. it's just in French. That's, they're playing their own <laughs> game, man. Yeah. It's quite unique. Uh, so keen to dig deeper into that and learn more. But um, I would strongly recommend for you guys to um, have a look at London if you're talking in yeah. other sides of the world because there's so much happening over here. It's yeah. so exciting. I just want to quickly comment on your t-shirt like <laughs> <laughs> I only realized it now um, yes. it says uh, I work in VC but scratched out working and says I am in VC I am v- a VC right? I am a VC yes this is a great t-shirt a bit embarrassing I should have not worn it um, but it's a gift from a friend of mine who makes fun of me for being so pumped about working with VC I'm very proud uh, yeah. and uh, and he made fun of me by giving me this t-shirt uh, but I think it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite, quite embarrassing, but it is what it is. I like it. Yeah, yeah I think it's, it's really comfortable. Cool. Yeah, yeah, so, um, dude, have you thought about, like, when you put it on, it's like, you feel like you're a VC? Yeah, man, like... no, no, it's quite, uh, it takes away that aspect, actually. It's, uh, it's quite, yeah, it makes me feel stupid. That's, that's as far as it goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so I want to I wanna ask about like some of the creative stuff you've done Let's before do uh, so you did acting before right yeah. like, so what, what was that like I, I don't know too many actors so well okay I, I've done acting my whole life Be, uh, unfortunately not so much in the past year or so um, because of mainly COVID um, and also because I've been proper focused on, on VC stuff but um Acting was a my way of expressing myself artistically, and uh, I have um, I am so in love with it. I think it's amazing, and uh, I can't wait to get back at it. And uh, it gave me so much uh, throughout my life. Um, it uh, I would say possibly the only reason why uh, I don't know. It's 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 hard to grasp the extent of which acting changed my personality and me as a person but I can I acknowledge the fact that it's uh, it's definitely there and I'm completely different since then yeah so do you think um, like doing acting and putting yourself out there made it easier for you to do like podcasting for sure I think that's definitely one of the things that it helps with like public speaking and just getting you to be able to speak more freely now I am a bit rusty I've noticed during this this interview Um, I'm a bit rusty but 100% I think acting helps people open up and understand how to speak more freely how to operate understand um, people's bodies and so on but um, also, one thing I, I really want to mention is that it's really not just that. There is so much more from on a personal note in the sense that acting allowed allows you... You know that, that description of Fred that I gave you earlier, that his greatest gift is, uh, I think, is his ability to sort of align his frequencies. That's mm-hmm. what I think acting does really well. It allows you to be able to let go of yourself and to... Uh, enter a new reality, a new role, a new person's body 
and to try to really dig deep into understanding how they operate, why they operate, what, how they reason, how they think, how they speak and why they speak like that, all sorts of things about a person. The more you dig deep into it, the more you understand another person's reality. And what I've noticed that does to you, if you do that over and over again, it, first of all, it gives you a much deeper appreciation of people, of how interesting creatures they are and, and how varied life is. But also, it made me understand that a lot of times when I'm speaking to someone, if I don't understand what they say, it's not necessarily because they're saying something that's just completely wrong or off, but it's because I don't, I'm not aligned with them. I don't understand, I don't, I'm not actually listening to them. I should align better and understand what's behind them and motivating them. So it gave me a, now I, I know it sounds a bit, a bit cheesy, but it gave me a bit of a, it's called empathy summarizes it pretty yeah. much. It, it makes you more able to understand what the other person is going through just because it gives you the gift of, of being able to acknowledge that they are thinking in other frequencies. So mm -hmm. adapt yourself and then you'll be able to crack the code of why you're not just getting something. You know when you talk to someone, it's just, how can you not see this? It's yeah. so obvious. Well, because they're just going off on another level. Yeah. It's just very different. And so um, it essentially makes me much more, I don't get so mad at people anymore, uh, <laughs> luckily, because I, I used yeah. to be a very emotional person. I still am quite emotional, I would say. But um, I don't get as mad as people because I get the, I think I have a better understanding of why people operate in specific yeah. ways because I adapt better. Wow, that, that is, that's amazing. And uh, yeah, which is why <laughs> I, I really wanted to say this because I think it would benefit so many people and it's, uh, it's an amazing practice and, and it goes so much beyond just being able to make you speak better. Yeah. You understand yeah. the depth of how much it changed uh -huh. me and it changes so many people. So when you say you're stepping into like this new character, it's like you're reframing how um, you're approaching things, how you you mm. react to things, how you even say things, right? Yeah. So that would yeah. I mean, I can I can tell like this this has really transformed the way you of like, a, like approach interact. Um, it's to understand someone. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's um when you so there are many many schools of acting each one of them has different sort of ways of thinking of how to get into character mm. and and different types of acting as well change like if you if you do tv acting yeah. um you gotta switch it on and switch it off so yeah. camera on and then you're like oh blah, 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 and then camera off and then you're back at you yeah. being you again if you do theater acting which is my uh you know my passion is much more prolonged and much more of a work in understanding the, you know, you have to sustain it for two hours and a half, three hours, depending on the play or whatever it is. So they're very different games and there are also in-betweens like short films and mm -hmm. so on. There are, they're very different games and there are many school of thought for each one of these games. Um, now, the really interesting aspect is that most of these, all of them require a really, sort of digging deeper into the character itself and understanding how they reason and why they operate and how they do everything and uh, that's a common denominator in acting just studying your character and it's the beauty of uh, of um, just you study the beauty of human mm. nature essentially which is so interesting how, how do you how do you study the character how do you like dig deep I, yeah never, no yeah. of course of course uh, there are many ways uh, I, I usually you start from the script because that's as much as you have uh, yeah. you have a script um, and uh, so you start going through the script 
and you start circling stuff that stands out you leave comments uh, on the side of the on the side of the script um, and then there there are there there is so many different types in the sense uh, in, when I was in Michigan I, I did an acting course there because I was also curious to understand how they think yeah. and the American school of thought is much more much more immediate much more brutal in the sense that they try to um, it's much more about highlighting and writing conclusion, highlighting and writing conclusion and go down to each sentence and what is the reason why a character is saying the specific sentence. So it breaks them apart. Whilst the Italian school of acting is much more about going through a script once with the whole team, understanding, okay, what happened over here? And then going through the whole thing again and creating an image much more, much more like over time you build together an image by reasoning why these things happen. Whilst the American one, I mean, that's my experience. I'm sure yeah. there are many, many faces of it. The American one was like, okay, we go through this every sentence we overanalyze it and understand exactly every single perception. They're very, very different and the results are also very different. Um, so how do you go through the script? In many ways, uh, just start reading it uh, mm -hmm. and start understanding it fully and to a great level. Um, which honestly also gives you an appreciation from the writer because the more you study a script, the more you realize that there is so much more to it than you first thought at the first reading. And so, so often it happened to me that I used to say, "Oh, this movie is shit," <laughs> and then you, you know, you look a bit deeper into it. You look at the script, you look at the theater version and the play and so on, and you start understanding more and more. Yes. And it's so hard. There is so much. Well, I have so much respect for screenwriters and 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 writers overall. It's a very complex process. What's the, what's the like school of thought or perception like way of doing things in the UK for acting? I haven't. I, I don't know too much. Well, it's geographical boundaries are just one th one thing. Uh, there is a few big schools, um, but um, here in the UK, I haven't explored as much because I never got a chance actually to follow a course. Mm -hmm. So I can't speak too much on uh, what are the um, what are the school of thoughts mostly followed over here in the UK? I should do that actually. I think that's a great exercise, and I will probably. Mm. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So, uh, has acting taught you to read body language and nuances when interacting with other people? Yes. Um, there is. Yeah, that's for sure. I think it's more subconscious than uh, than straight away in the sense that you're like, uh, uh, it's not like I see you raise an eyebrow and I'm like, <laughs> oh, this guy's thinking about something. Uh, I think it's one of those things that comes, as I was saying, you know, I'm talking a lot about signals, but it's. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it helps you notice what the other person like it's one of the things that your brain picks up naturally and acting gives you a deeper perspective possibly into what people it makes you more aware and over the time i think you become a better better at picking up those signals um so it's it just adds to the decision making process adds to the your brain power of yeah. understanding people yeah yeah because i know that uh, acting is a, like very full body sort of thing right yeah yeah of course like, um whether you stoop or you're like standing up straight, it affects how you the tone of voice and oh yeah, of course, right? of course, beautiful, beautiful, and and it's interesting because it connects the personality as well. Like, why is a person as a specific stature? Why, how do they operate? What's their um, and the tone of voice then changes how you pronounce stuff, and how you pronounce stuff can make you invest in a company or not invest in a company. Yeah. So uh, the way we operate is 
you know a central aspect of humankind and I think acting is pretty much the study of understanding how people operate and the embodiment of it it doesn't just limit itself to that so um, one I, I truly truly recommend discovering uh, mm. discovering the world of acting um, but it may not be for everybody so leave it up to you do you have a favorite character that you have played a favorite character uh, uh that I have played, um, yes, uh, it's a character in the play in Mercante di Venezia, um, and is Lancillotto, Lancelot. Oh yeah. It was an amazing character uh, that I particularly love because he has this internal monologue of trying to understand whether he should stay with this, um, um, I'm not gonna say owner. How do you say with this? Um, this let's call him boss. It's an extremely yeah. terrible term for what I want to say. But uh, um, he's trying to understand whether he should stay with this uh, boss or no. And and he has this internal monologue of trying to decide: should I stay or should like I go? A mentor? Or? No, no, not mentor. Like proper proper uh, owner. Like yeah. it, it was the serve uh, servant. Okay. Um, now this was many years ago, so I should revisit the script before talking about it. But. Um, I may be getting it wrong, but from my recollection, he has this beautiful, beautiful monologue of sort of internal conflict between staying there where there is comfort and mm -hmm. safety, but at the same at the same time, this urge to leave because he's maltreated and mistreated by the, by by his um, by his owner and and boss. So um, this internal monologue was amazing because it sheds light onto. You can play it very well as an actor in the sense it's super interesting when you get these these different pull and push internally. Um, it, there, it's just a very interesting exercise because there is many ways to show that physically and vocally uh, push and pull and, and many yeah. interesting plays that you can uh, you can utilize. So I think it's one of my favorites to play, that's for sure. Ooh, um, but was it was a few years ago. Was it also like the most difficult to play, or was that some different? Ah, uh, no, no. I think the most difficult to play was another one. It, it, it was on a play called West Ham. No, West West End. I don't know. I don't know. It was just called West, but I don't remember the name of the writer. Damn it! Uh, you're calling me out on all my bullshit. <laughs> right? No, I uh, and it was um, no the the most the hardest character to play was actually very. It, it's the one that was. Funnily enough, it was the most mysterious one. Uh, I didn't have enough information in the script about the character. They didn't give any background, and so I was left a bit alone because I really rely a lot of, upon the script. So it, it was like very minimalist on explaining what the character actually does or mm. is, or and so I had to sort of figure it out by myself. That was definitely the hardest because you're sort of contributing to the script uh, and building out the character. Yeah. So I, if I if I I remember that I struggled a lot with that one, and yeah. it didn't come. I wasn't super excited on the on how it came out. Uh, so it's like because you you had to create it pretty in much your, pretty your way much. as well, and it, and part of that is with writing. It's like you're also writing it at the same time to play, right? And um, contributing your perspective on it and seeing whether it fits with the themes and exactly. the tone of it. As well. Exactly, and also making it interesting, like. You get you don't get many characters, right? You get one, and you get and I was, you know, 
it's interesting because sometimes you don't necessarily need to make every character stand out but you as an actor you want them to stand out because you're it's your character you want but it's also the job of a supporting actor to make sure that you don't necessarily always need to stand out sometimes you need to let go of the you you don't sometimes being a great actor is not coming across as a great actor it's just playing your part in the play and supporting another actor that needs to come across as the great actor so it's interesting internal dynamics that um, that character did, didn't give me too much of and um, yeah it was a lot of making up and working with your body to understand how you can create this character so it's a the hardest one was definitely because that one because I had to create it and it's in the play West and it's the mean bad guy so I, I'm gonna reread to try to figure out uh, everything but it was uh, back in um, in Italy um, in Switzerland actually when I was doing my acting school with uh, Matt uh, interesting <laughs> time interesting time yeah yeah so um, continuing with the entertainment with the entertainment industry um, tell us about your dissertation on AI affecting AI. <sighs> the entertainment industry. What dissertation? Yeah, I did a dissertation for my last year of university in uh, how artificial intelligence might impact the future of uh, movies. So originally I was doing entertainment industry, but then I quickly realized that the scope was so broad and uh, the themes that I could have talked about are, were so many like music, cinema, theater, and job, like all sorts of events, all sorts of entertainment. So I was like, okay, I definitely need to focus down on something. And I decided to do it on movies just because it was where I could find most material already existing. Um, and uh, and yeah, it was a big mistake. That's the first thing I want to say <laughs> because uh, I had to do a deep work into understanding artificial intelligence itself and I underestimated how hard that could be from coming from a not completely non-technical person so um, I shouldn't have done that I, I um, should have much more I I don't know I kind of wanted to discover wanted to do it as a bit of a challenge for me to let's yeah. see how deep I can go in AI and understand properly how it can impact the, the industry um, I probably should have stuck to doing mostly the business side of things in the sense that uh, let's see actually what are the results and case studies of the implications. But I tried to do a work where I tried to properly understand the nature of AI, where it comes from and where it could expand within this industry. Um, so more inductive rather than deductive and I should have done more deductive. But um, yeah, it came out a, sh a, a pretty shitty paper, uh, not gonna lie. Uh, I got a pretty poor grade on it, um, but it turned out to be extremely, extremely interesting from a personal perspective because right now at work, I actually get the chance to talk to a lot of people that are working on the stuff that I talk about that would happen on my on my dissertation. Um, so it uh, turned out for the best because right now I see every now and then, actually we are looking right now at one startup that is doing something pretty cool with uh, body motion and AI try just by utilizing cameras is, um, I can't explain too much about yeah, no it for obvious yeah. reasons, but just by utilizing a few cameras, they can pick up body motions and sensor motion and utilize that for gaming and cinema and so on. And uh, um, that's interesting because usually the industry, the industry utilizes body sensors. So a lot of, you know, you've seen yeah, the images. Right? CGI, yeah. Right? yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and so if you can get rid of that and do that at scale because everybody owns smartphones and you can create body mm -hmm. motion and then you can enable user-generated content at scale which is something I'm extremely bullish on and extremely in love with because of what I was explaining before uh, and also because over history 
uh, individuals have always outperformed companies when given the right tools to do so. So the most amount of content you consume on your phone every single day on your laptop comes from other individuals, not from companies. Um, why? Because they were given the tools to create videos and, and stuff by themselves and, and they just do it at scale much better because everybody, like it's just human nature and it's 7 billion people versus, I don't know how many we are on earth right now, <laughs> but 7 billion people, a bit less because not everybody has access unfortunately yet, um, versus a couple hundred thousand of corporations that are working on it. I don't know how many. but. Um, um, yeah, individuals have always outperformed uh, companies when given the right tools, and I think um, we sh it, it's a switch from industrial age mentality where actually we came to the realization oh, companies outperform individuals when they come together. Um, so I think there is a bigger trend right now towards power back to the individuals as we commoditize tools mm -hmm. and user generated content in 3D and all sorts of content actually so such a cool trend that I'm in love with I don't know where I, where why I'm saying all of this but oh it's one of the trends that uh, I've I, I, w I talked about in my dissertation that is definitely I'm, I'm very interested uh, about yes uh, I've I read a paper from DeepMind you know the, mm -hmm, the Google AI research lab and it was on uh, AI in stand-up comedy Woo! so one of the characters in was an AI right and oh yeah! So you you feed you feed uh, lines from other from the other stand up like comedians, what they were, you know like a stand up com comedy play. That's super interesting. It, you feed that into the AI, which has the natural language processing model, and that the AI spits out some things which um, the other stand up comedians have to go with. You that know? is super super interesting <laughs> yeah. because stand up comedy has a few rules, internal unspoken rules that yeah. you kind of follow. Uh, now, stand-up comedy is a very different art from improv or acting, but some things overlap. I'm sorry, I think it may have been improv. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, improv. But it was okay. also it was also comedy. It was like it was like Imp comedy improv. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah. Well, improv has a few specific rules that you pretty much always follow. So I can totally see why uh, you can like with the experiment. That's wildly intriguing. I love that. I love that. I think there is a, and it's quite interesting because it also asks the questions, what is art like what do we produce and if you enjoy it doesn't matter that it was an AI that wrote it because if you ask people right now and you're like would you go to a play written by AI most people I think people would say yes just by because they are like intrigued to see what the play is yeah but once we, you get over that aspect would you watch a movie written by AI or would you want to watch one by written by a human I think at some point As, you, you may not even be able to tell exactly what happens when you don't tell when you can't tell yeah. uh, like what happens then <laughs> from to us uh, as a species yeah. to consume content and uh, and um, it maybe you are able to tell because the one written by AI is so much better it just <laughs> clicks perfectly with exactly what you want because it's dynamic it understands what you want to hear about it understands what you want to talk about it understands literally everything about you and your reaction to specific stuff and it feeds you live I don't know I'm going off here <laughs> but what I'm saying is AI and content of all sorts is extremely interesting yeah. because our relationship with art has always been oh that's what makes us humans mm -hmm. and now we've got AI coming yeah. for it and so we're like oh maybe it's something else that makes us human consciousness yeah. and blah 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 it's kind of feels like we're escaping a bit this discussion <laughs> of what is actually art and uh, I'm slowly starting to think that art may just be science that we don't understand 
So it's just our word to describe <laughs> just a science that we're just not able to comprehend because it's so broad and intriguing and we don't really know how it works. We haven't figured out what makes something else click. So we describe it, yeah, that's art, <laughs> but it's actually just science because it makes us react in specific ways chemically from a specific, if something happens, something in us happens, it's just action reaction. If we understood it, we would define it as science possibly. So. Um, I don't know. I'm, I, it's it's a sad concept because I'm in love with art, but at the same time I realize I don't understand it, and so I don't rule out the option that um, my just inability to properly understand it is what makes it beautiful. So it's it's quite sad as a concept, actually. You know, when you spoke about the uh, the unspoken rules of improv, mm. the uh, the AI actually broke all the rules. It broke it. Yeah. Oh, no. So um, it it, cre- it creates a lot of like status reversals. Okay. Where uh, stand up, uh, what well, were the improv actors who were initially at the forefront and then the limelight of the, uh, of the of the improv like, uh, play, mm-hmm. they actually were reduced and pushed back, pushed into the background. Other people came up. Nice. So you don't usually get that because uh, the improv actors who are at the front want to stay in the front, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. things mean- like that and uh, strange descriptions as well that they came up with. Oh, like, like I'm a very sure. like burgly and hard-handed like uh, bread owner or like <laughs> bread shop owner, right? You oh know? yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting because um, it, it's interesting because you're playing with rules and and also uh, what's how human brains work. I I believe is we find funny stuff that kind of breaks some sort of implicit rule, like something we shouldn't talk about and you should talk about, or yeah, something you shouldn't say yes. and you say. And so breaking the rule itself is what makes it funny and interesting, <laughs> and the AI knows it, and so it's breaking the rules, but how many rules can you break for it to be interesting or mm. for it to go completely off rail? Such an interesting exercise, and you absolutely need to link this study from yeah. DeepMind underneath this podcast description so that everybody can go listen yeah. to it. Yeah, so, um, and also just when you mentioned like, what is art and will you be able to tell the difference, right? Uh, I had a thought where uh, maybe at some point with the whole, with the improvement of recommendation systems, they may actually just make a whole movie, like the AI can make a whole movie just tuned to you, you know? And it could make a lot of content just tuned to you and just get you addicted to it. Oh, uh, pretty much TikTok, no? It's just a long <laughs> yeah. movie that you don't, it's not correlated mm. though. It's like completely yeah. random, but I totally mm. agree. And, and, and that also makes you think, okay, what happens when recommendation systems get to a level uh, where they know exactly what people want uh, and they also, however, want to create something in the financial interest of the production houses, so to limit the expenses, will content converge? Like, will we get... Okay, so um, you go to the... uh, There are... uh, there are a few franchises and a few big movie names that are making huge huge bucks essentially they're making a lot of numbers and so our taste the more we consume of something are we are we converging because the recommendation system understands that we get a bunch of so the 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 recommendation system understands that a specific number of actors with specific faces and specific traits is getting good results with a specific team and a specific blah 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 does that suggest to the production houses to produce more of that content because it was so successful? So this financially driven production process, does it produce actually personal content or converged content for the masses just to outspore every every little inch of, of money out of the system? That's also an interesting question. 
uh, luckily we have we humans like um, content that is varied and interesting and, and I don't think we necessarily need to converge and I think there are interesting dynamics actually where the information feed is stuck in between and Netflix actually Netflix is able to go beyond that because Netflix produces the content itself because it has yeah. such a good understanding of the people that listen to the mm -hmm. content and, and, and watch the content. So yeah. you understand exactly what they want and you produce that accordingly. That's risky as hell, but at the same time, I have, uh, I can't say I have trust in Netflix to produce back <coughs> content. No, but yeah. I mean, we'll see. I think there is a lot, a lot to be talking about. Uh, like, th there is so much interesting stuff around these uh, concepts. It's mind blowing. Like, uh, what, what I meant just now was that, like, Netflix could just create. Um, like an, an AI where no actors are needed no script writers are needed and it just and it just creates the content and then it gives it to you dynamically yeah and gives it and to then you like, so <laughs> all you need to do is train it and then it'll just keep giving you content forever perfect, you know? perfect content dynamically <laughs> which you can interact with yeah you can literally be part of, <laughs> of a script just made up on the moment well it's pretty much video game NPC like j mm. just video games normal yeah. it's a uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting Amazing. world. How, how we interact with content and humans is going to change dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that we can more and more effectively interact with these, these AIs with like, it's, it's such an amazing, <laughs> man, can you, how lucky are we to be living in the 21st century right now? How lucky yeah. are we? I really hope we get to a point where it's just out of curiosity. I just want to see how far we can go um, and how much interesting thing because I truly think it's going to change human perception of um, you know the limits of what's human and what's not. It's just challenging every sort of understanding of art, human humanity, consciousness of all sorts. And so, yeah. <laughs> uh, interesting time to be alive. Yeah, so exciting! So many questions. Really. So so, so, so many little, things. So little answers and so, <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you you mentioned before that um, your passion is in the entertainment industry yeah. as with other things as well. So, um, yeah, do you do you want to get back into it? What what do what are you thinking of? Of course. Well, first of all, I am already back into it in the sense that I get I'm lucky. I invest in entertainment companies here, yeah. right as well. So I can't say I'm completely out of the entertainment industry. Luckily, in the sense that the first deal I led is actually um, a gaming company, uh, so mm -hmm. it's uh, uh, it's not announced yet. We can talk about it, but <laughs> it's uh, it's I'm very very proud of it and uh, definitely along along my alley. So I haven't left the entertainment industry. I've left it as an actor for now um, to focus on on just VC and everything else, but. I'm 100% coming back at some point. <laughs> I really love it. And um, and it doesn't necessarily need to be only as an actor. I think movie production and all sorts of different kind of content production. I, I have the benefit that I, I get exposed to all of these futuristic concepts and technologies. So I'm really curious to see what I can do um, and explore the boundaries of content production um, by producing, by directing, or being an actor. I understand that all of these are really, really like they require expertise and, and full, you know, they're, they're proper jobs and, and proper stuff that you need to work on before doing anything meaningful and, and so on. But I also think that we are in, a, in an historical time where people are able to have more, many types of passions and many types of ways of expressing themselves. And uh, 
and we have some great examples of people that are are doing multiple things successfully so mm. i'm lucky that i don't get to be limited uh, and and stuck in one specific profession and i think vc is one example of professions that actually allow you to explore multiple stuff because you're not super time bound you can be quite mm -hmm. flexible on your own and so definitely coming back after, <laughs> definitely coming back with exploring yeah. the entertainment industry actually quite keen to invest and also produce something already so i think oh, I, may, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I may may do something yeah, there but everyone watch out for michelangelo valtancoli yeah uh, let's go yes <laughs> yes do watch out for me <laughs> yeah so um going forward what what is what is your dream or north star what motivates you uh well that's one hell of a question what motivates me is um I would say more and more my answer to that question is shifting towards curiosity in the sense that I, I think it, uh, it's a natural internal pull towards something more than anything else. Uh, if I'm completely honest with you, it's uh, it's like the answer is literally an internal an internal push towards something that I I feel feels right um, more than anything else. However, if I try to word it out, um, that would possibly be increasing as much as possible the impact that I can have with my limited resources and intelligence on yeah. humankind um, in the sense sort of trying to understand how I considering my limited self can impact everything else and and the common the collective intelligence and progress um, because humans gotta evolve we gotta keep going I don't know if it's the right direction or not I think I contribute however I can personally with my resources towards the direction that I think is right. It may be the wrong one on my side, but someone else is going to compensate on the other. I think I got to follow what I, my internal push says. My internal push says is go out, discover, try to work with these incredible people, find, you know, provide them back the right founders right now. But I'll keep exploring and it will keep changing. But the goal is essentially to contribute to humanity because it's got to move forward. Mm -hmm. we're, we're all here together trying to yeah. create something cool. And uh, I don't necessarily mean it in a, in a way like contribute to society in a way that just make everybody happy. That's not what I mean. I mean, just move the wheel forward um, or what feels us forward. We don't actually know mm -hmm. if it is. Um, but uh, definitely putting in the effort to do that as much <laughs> as possible and uh, hopefully the direction is somewhat right I mean I don't even know if there is anything as that you can define as right but you know hopefully it's a, it's a good direction I felt like a very honest and answer yeah I mean uh, <laughs> I, I'm, yeah I, it's um, like you see this would be a good tweet uh, because it's so like it's so open and you can discuss yeah. and have a bunch of opinions on it but um, yeah, I'm trying, trying to do my best. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah. Uh, so, just want to ask, who who inspires you? You know, I want to understand what what makes you tick. Uh, that's that's one interesting question. I don't know uh, who inspires me. Well, let's. I could answer that like Matthew McConaughey on his uh, on his acceptance speech at the Oscars that says, um, uh, "Who inspires me is always myself five years or ten years ahead." That's who inspires me, but. If I if I okay, let's be honest over here. Let's not let's not mention these guys. Um, I think my possibly well, the biggest influence is surely my dad, um, because um, 
Yeah, I mean, we're we're without getting necessarily too emotional. Um, what is a son if not the uh, just the extension of his father? Uh, I have I I. This is a, a quote from Dune, the the book, which is a pretty pretty amazing book, and I, I just stuck with me quite a lot because I feel like it's something that is within me. I feel like there is a strong strong connection between my dad and I, and. Uh, um, he, feel, he always felt very far away from me in the sense uh, we grew up close and everything but he felt uh, not unreachable like uh, always an ideal essentially for it to be an ideal it's, it's far right it's something that is far and you feel like you cannot obtain and you're, you're separated from um, which on one side is a, it's a concept that makes you sad because you shouldn't think it's something unreachable but on the other side it's also what motivates you um, and I don't mean that I want to be like my dad we're inherently different people and so on but um, I have a natural just I'm naturally directed to imitate some of the behaviors just because then I grew up in that environment and um, and I think it did a great job on some aspects and uh, and uh, so I'm uh, essentially if, if you ask me who, who's a uh, who inspires you I have to say my dad just because he's such a big impact on me and uh, and it affected me so deeply so yeah, yeah I, think, I think I'd love to hear that and he's probably very proud of you at the moment who knows who knows <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah it's not it's not it's not one yeah. one to speak too much about uh, being proud or not but I, I, I like to think so yeah, you, you put him up there with Matthew McConaughey <laughs> I well, uh, I don't know Matthew so I can't really speak about him but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. awesome um well, so what are, what are the next steps for you? What are the next steps for me? Um, I want to be free to impact the world however I think I should. So next steps for me are um, become as good as I can and learn as much as I can about investing and, um, and startups. Just understand the game of startups and understand how you can create stuff that meaningfully impacts the world. Um, so learning essentially for the next few years and try to become, to reach a level where I can properly impact as many people as possible and then starts, starts uh, um, just freely outspurring my, my love for the craft and creation and so start producing stuff, we go back to acting and create art and back startups freely however and whenever I want to. So I want to reach that level where I have enough, I'm enough of a full person to be able to uh, properly, ex you know, expands. I'm showing yeah. you physical, but uh, just give back. Essentially, I want. I need to reach that freedom. That uh, right now I'm bound to my limit. So uh, I'm trying to as much as possible learn for the next few years to reach that point. That's that's wonderful. So uh, where can people find your work and contact you? Well, work to the point to the to, to the level right now. There is not much to be found out there, but you can find well my podcast that I've mentioned a few times is called Almost Founders. We haven't posted in quite a while, and I don't think we will. Uh, it will be something different, but I think there are some great interviews, and you should go listen to them if you want to learn about um, becoming a startup founder. And um, you can find me on LinkedIn at Michelangelo Valtancoli and on Twitter at Michelangelo underscore MV. Um, there I post my thoughts, my opinions. Every now and then they might be very, very stupid, very <laughs> philosophical, very uh, abstract and so on. But every now and then there might be something helpful, hopefully. So uh, yeah, just follow me on, on LinkedIn and Twitter and uh, hopefully something good comes out of, uh, out of this. 
Thank you so much. Thank this, you, man. This has been the Zen's podcast. Thank you very much, Michelangelo. For your Thank time. you. It was it's, so fun. It's been amazing.